1: Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley. Don't forget, if you hear something on the podcast which you like or you want to complain about, you can email me matt at times.radio. Matt at times.radio. Right, coming up on today's episode, we've had a lot of drama in politics over the last... Year? Two years? Three years? Four years? Five years? Six years? Seven years, maybe. Uh, So, uh, no man would know better whether or not you could turn it into a real drama than James Graham. He's the genius behind shows like This House, Best of Enemies, Inc. He also did Queers, which went from the stage to the screen uh he also did Love's uh, love to label. anyway he's done loads and loads of stuff he's uh, coming up a uh, really fascinating chat with him about what makes a drama and whether or not there is anything that's gone on in the last year or so that he, w- he would want to turn his attention to uh, a lovely man and a lovely chat that's coming up in just a moment first though as ever we kick off with our columnist panel
2: The columnists with Night at the Marriott, India Knight and James Marriott on Times Radio.
1: Yes, they're back for the first time this year. What well, me anyway? It's India Night. Morning, India. Morning. And James Marriott. Morning, James. Good morning. Nice to have you both with us. Now, James, you've had a busy old week. You've had a busy had an incredibly week. incredibly busy week. Yeah, I'm, I'm recovering. I mean, for for You're a, a once-a-week column merchant, you know, you've really got their pounds of... <laughs> Flesh of I you mean, this week, but uh, if it's not reading Harry's book in uh, two hours to uh, listening to an entire podcast series about <laughs> uh, about Partygate, uh, there's even more, there's even more Partygate uh, in the Times today. Uh, not only this uh, Times, no, this uh, ITV podcast uh, revealing that Boris Johnson had joked about being the most unsocially distanced party in the UK, right now. Uh, when everyone else is in lockdown, uh, the Times also reporting uh, about um, various individual, unnamed individuals. I think I think we could probably surmise it. it's basically having sex in a cupboard. That's basically what we're talking about. Two couples were seen by numerous witnesses becoming intimate with each other. A uh, party continued past four a.m. Two of them were later seen emerging from a kitchen, looking flustered. So, James, you've listened to the podcast that we don't have to. What did you make of it? I have,
3: yeah. I mean, I, obviously, all this stuff about the parties is incredibly shocking and, you know, terrible, and they shouldn't have been doing it. And there were a few intriguing extra little details. You know, someone spilled wine down the photocopier. You know, they were blasting Spotify in the kitchen the night before the Duke of Edinburgh's funeral. Uh, the podcast itself, I, I found a little bit tedious. There's, You know those podcasts, if anyone listens to them, that just go on and on and on and on? And they're about a news story, but then kind of two thirds of it is also about the journalists who are investigating the news story. And you hear a lot about which journalist went where and said what to who. And that aspect of podcasting, um, you know, it it got a bit much for me. You know, there's some interesting stuff but it was quite heavy listening, I thought.
1: You suggested this morning we should do this whole item as uh, like an American podcast. Where... Yeah, well, we all talk about how marvelous we are, and like how we're speaking truth to power, and we just talk about how great we are, and then you know maybe just a tiny bit of journalism at the end. And, and we we've all got absurd job titles. You get uh, you, uh, James, you could be senior executive vice president. <laughs> brackets news. India, India, you could be senior executive vice president. You know, brackets uh, news gathering or something because they're almost all identical. Um, <laughs> Uh, before we before we talk about the the generally you know imitation of podcasts, which is ironic because this this will be on a podcast. Uh, but um, uh, India, twelve months ago, we'd have been we'd have talked about nothing else but these uh, revelations
4: about Partygate. In fact, we did talk about little else. Does it does it matter anymore? I guess it does. I guess it does. I've lost my appetite for party gate information. I've got the gist. They shouldn't have done it. I still don't understand why people were shagging in cupboards and spilling wine everywhere, like, you know, annoying teenagers once their parents are away for the weekend. It seems really, um, it just seems such sort of weird behaviour anyway. um, But I'm slightly bored of hearing about it, yeah. yeah. Are you? A little
1: bit, a little bit. And I, I suppose it's one of those things where, you sort of reach, I don't know what, what it is, it's sort of like once the bucket is full, it's like, okay, overall, we've got a sense of what was going on. Mm. And whether or not, we know that Boris Johnson was at these parties, we know he joked about them, he toasted them, we've seen the pictures and all that. Mm. Whether or not getting another joke, it's sort of, the, it the bucket can't get any more full. In terms of the sort of overall picture that we've we've got of it. And what about um do you listen to a lot of podcasts in the sort of there is this sort of slight feeling sometimes of, of the Americanization of British, particularly political journalism. The, there the, is, absolutely. The, the, the curse of the long read. Um, the curse of the long read, exactly.
4: There's that sense, um, as James was just saying of the journalist being incredibly important, incredibly heroic, and it not being enough to tell the story, to gather the news and tell the story, but to go into these, you know, really kind of self aggrandizing and very overly dramatic. And then I went down the corridor and to my amazement, room five was ahead of me, you know. Um, <laughs> that just sort of slightly make you want to giggle. I mean, I find I find self aggrandizement in journalism quite hilarious anyway you know there are certain columnists who write as if the nation had been weeping on its knees like supplicants waiting for them to pronounce on one topic or another and I find that quite comical and in podcasts it's just sort of a bit absurd particularly when you've got a really good meaty story just tell the story oops just tell the story it doesn't matter whether your car broke down that morning or what the weather was doing particularly it's very kind of overwrought and, yeah, super American because Americans are so pleased with themselves. American broadcasters are so pleased with themselves. Yeah, there was a,
1: there's another podcast, which I won't name, but they did, a, I was listening to it, they did a sort of review of the year. And the first, I'm going to say five or ten minutes of it was actually them discussing who texted who when about setting up the podcast.
4: Yeah, see, don't care. <laughs> It's awful. I,
3: I heard someone say, I think quite convincingly, that all this stuff stems from the Watergate scandal yeah. when journalists genuinely did bring down an American president. We all suddenly, especially in America, and it's leaked over here, got very pleased with ourselves, very amazed at all the marvelous, terribly important things we could do. And everybody kind of wants to be, you know, Woodward Wood and Bernstein, the people who brought Nixon down. And, you know, before that, no one had thought about journalists like that. And then suddenly we all became a bit too self important. Uh, and we need to remember that, you know, we're not that important.
1: Well, and I suppose also it's sort of, it, it, it's, it's all there just to impress other other journalists. And, and actually, you're right, the, the point you make, India, you know, about columnists and, you know, the entire nation uh, waiting for us to pronounce. I mean, I don't take that approach to my column at all. I mean, it's essentially just sort of there for entertainment. I, got an ex- I thought they were waiting. I, I thought they well, were I, waiting. I'm horrified by the implication they might not be. <laughs> I, uh, I, I got into an extraordinary argument with another columnist from a different paper, just before Christmas, because I'd written a whole column based on when um, Rishi Sunak had said his his go to Christmas song was his go to Christmas album was Michael Bublé, and I said it's a terrible affront to our homegrown Christmas song writers, and and went to a whole load of constituencies where. Joe Joe knew came from, and all that sort of thing. And I made a joke about how the Midlands was once glam rock solid Labour, referring to Wizard and Slade and all that sort of thing. And somebody just I, had an enormous go at me about how, if actually, if you look at the 1956 election, it wasn't <laughs> glam rock solid. It's like, oh, but this is a pun. We're all just, we just calmed out. We don't need to start picking faults in each other's puns. Anyway. Uh, we probably don't need to get too bogged down in that because we're just sort of airing our dirty but it's even worse it's even worse <laughs> airing our dirty laundry in public uh, somebody else has just uh, texted in so I can't listen to podcasts with background music that's the other thing isn't it James when you get the sort of the oh, sort of the drum beats, the, sort of, yeah. the, the it's when it's not
3: exciting enough they have to put exciting music in to trick you into thinking it's more exciting than it is
1: yeah
3: we don't we don't need music on here
1: yeah, well, no, maybe, a, maybe, maybe, um, maybe we, when we put this on the Redbox podcast later, we will put some, uh, some really dramatic music. Dramatic <laughs> you know, classical behind me in India. Over the top of it, over the top of it. Yeah, definitely. Right, let's move on, uh, because otherwise we'll be accused of being self-indulgent, uh, discussing other people's <laughs> self-indulgence. Let's talk about pensions. What do you need to live on in retirement? I suppose, that, so this the, the figure that's come out today, at least £12,800 a year is needed to maintain a basic standard of living in retirement. Which I mean, not means not... Not a huge amount. Not a lot. I suppose if you've got, in theory, I don't know, but is it assuming that you've paid off a mortgage, so you haven't got any housing cost possibly. Yeah, it
4: must be. It must be. And
1: it's up seventeen percent in a year. But I suppose it also all this goes back to this this thing we've been talking about with uh, people retire, you know, uh, taking early retirement, leaving the workforce. Government trying to get them back to work. There is part of me that thinks if you retire at 50, how confident are you going to be that the sums that you've retired on that basis is still going to hold up in 10, 20, yeah. 30 years' time? In that twelve hundred, you know, if the, the base if the living cost you need rise by 17%. So it was 10,900 in 2021, rising by 17% in a year. If it did that every year, your numbers won't add up, in you? Not yours personally, but
4: one's numbers won't add up. No, absolutely. Um, I think it's a really, really, I mean, I also think that 12000 even if you've paid off your mortgage, is really not a lot. I don't know. I haven't got a pension because I'm freelance and um, I will be um, working until my dying day, I think. That's okay. That's good. I like working. I think it's good to work. I think retirement is... Actually, I observe retirement might be slightly overrated. Obviously, the idea of mooching around doing nothing is nice up to a point. But actually, <clears throat> lots of retired people I know are getting divorced because they discover that the person they're with is not as fun as they were. You know, the, this has all been concealed by people going out to work and then regrouping in the evenings. But once they're at home with each other all day, every day, cracks appear. <laughs>
1: I think, I was I was struck by that actually because I was listening to to breakfast this morning and lots of people were emailing in talking about um, the reasons they'd given up work when they had but there is some people do like their and I completely understand if you're in a grim job or you know you're just starting out not everyone loves their work but the but good work that you enjoy the. It may it imp- it makes your life better. It uses your brain. It may be, you know, do if it's a bit physical or keep you a bit fitter. You meet new people, you build up friendships and relationships beyond your 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 home. There is there is merit in the the act of work, James, not just in the earning of money. Yeah, totally. So both my
3: parents retired recently and I thought about it in a way I hadn't before. And part of it is also work just becomes such a huge part of your identity. You know, if you spend 50 years of your life going around staying at party as well. I'm a management consultant, you know, or I'm a doctor or whatever it might be to suddenly just be nothing. I mean, you know, we're not saying we should be defined by our work, but I think, you know, that's quite tough. And there's a real phenomenon. I remember um, my my dad's a teacher and he always used to say there's a real phenomenon of teachers basically would just like, I'm not saying this happens to everyone, often just retire. And, you know, as soon as you retire, you die. And that's quite common. And I think people are sustained by, you know, this sense of meaning, this kind of, they've got a purpose, they've got an identity. And I think, yeah, I would. Yeah, there are definite, you know, there are definite downsides to just putting that
1: aside, especially putting it aside all at once. And maybe that's one of the, one of the the things. I don't know how the government sort of communicates that, but sort of making a case for the value of work in and of itself, you know, for you, you know, being, you know, you're completely right. People retire early, so you're like you. If you're not careful, and obviously clearly some people, you know, they've saved up and they spend the whole time touring the
4: world and lots of hobbies and all that, but your your life
1: can shrink quite quickly. India.
4: Yes, your life becomes if you're not careful, and if you're not very fortunate, because obviously it would be lovely to go scooting around the world, looking at meeting new interesting people. But you're, I think, generally that's like a funnel. You know, you you stop working, you stop. As James has just said, your your sense of yourself shifts, not necessarily in a particularly welcome way, and your world becomes teeny weeny. Now, if you have cleverly. Set your world up so that it is compact and neat and tidy, and you love the teeny weeniness of it. Great, but otherwise, I think quite a lot of people feel quite kind of unmoored and don't really know what to do with themselves. And I mean, it's a it's a difficult thing to sell because, of course, if the government says work hard for longer, you just think, well, a, don't tell me what to do, and b, don't have you know, this is this is sort of a a, a, a kind of puritanical idea that work defines you and work gives you your life value and purpose but actually it does if you like your job obviously
1: yeah, it's interesting Simon just got <laughs> in touch i don't know if his name is simon chelmsford or simon in Chelmsford. simon says many older people would welcome the chance to return to work but due to the tax situation is not attractive loneliness is a big problem today mm. and it could be a solution for many people suffering from depression but there will need to be a certain amount of flexibility and the tax situation had to be addressed. I suppose there's also that thing of saying, well, you know, part-time working, flexible working, it, it not being a case of, well, it's five days a week or nothing. Mm. Or it's five days in an office or nothing. Yeah, maybe there is, there is something in that. Anyway, I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting. Uh, and that's the main thing, because I'm in charge here. Let's turn our attention now to Andrew Bridger. About this time yesterday, he lost a Conservative whip after posting a tweet comparing or claiming that a cardiologist in the interest of accuracy, claiming that a cardiologist had told him that the rollout of the COVID vaccine was like the Holocaust, or the worst thing since the Holocaust. But for a number of weeks, the now independent MP for Northwest West Leicester has been posting information online about the vaccine. And uh, what we thought we'd do is actually look at what he's been saying and fact-check it with Will Moy, who is the chief executive of Full Fact, a fact-checking organisation, has been looking at the post. Hi, Will. Good morning, Matt. So what has he been saying uh, which is false.
2: Well the the comment yesterday obviously comparing uh the vaccine to the Holocaust was shameful, obviously false and has caused these political reactions. Um but there there's been a, a long trend of Mr Bridgen making claims that aren't reliable about the vaccines and it's really important to make a distinction. Full Fact is not here to persuade people to have a vaccine, that's none of our business. We are here to try to help people make sure they have the information they would want to make their own mind up about it. And Mr Bridgen has done some really important scrutiny of the government around vaccines and Full Fact is there for that scrutiny. We have also called out the government when they've got things wrong, we have called out the opposition when they challenged the government getting things wrong themselves, we have called out the Public health authorities where necessary. But recently, Mr. Bridgen has gone further and further into claims that are just not justifiable, that are just distorting the evidence or completely detached from the evidence. And then the Holocaust comparison yesterday was uh, taking it, you know, that next step. But we've heard him, for example, say that pregnant women uh, are being advised not to get the vaccine when they are getting the vaccine. We've heard him suggest that um, the adverse effects, as they are known, after getting the vaccine, the times when somebody takes this medicine and then has something bad for their health happen, are being underplayed when that's not actually um, a fair uh, assessment of what's actually going on. Um, we've heard him calling for question the safety of the vaccines for children using evidence that's taken out of context. Um, so very often what we've seen is something with a source in it where that source is being misunderstood or misused. And then we've been sorry to see him go further and further from that world into just plain false claims or claims that have been debunked a very long time ago that are now in the realm of conspiracy theory.
1: James Marritton Indian Art, and of course you can read them every week. Just go and become a time subscriber. Go to the times.co.uk forward slash time event box
0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yeah, talk about making a drama out of a political crisis, as there's one man who's made a career out of taking our big national moments and turning them into big hits on stage and screen. It's James Graham. Uh, Here's a reminder of some of his big hits.
0: When Parliament dissolves at 5pm today, I am no longer the member for Spelthorne, nor Jack here, the member for Croydon North East, nor you, the member for Paddington South. But Paddington, sadly,
3: will go on without you.
1: It is a lesson we all must learn. If you find a potential voter, you hit him hard, and if it looks like they're gonna bend, then you don't just walk away, pat yourself on the back, you double down, hit him again and again, right? With 350 million pounds and turkey. 350 million quid and turkey again. 350 million quid and turkey again. He changed his mind knowing that he would lose 15,000
0: pounds if he gave the wrong answer, he went with Craig David, who he'd never heard of. And <laughs> that's the right answer.
2: I never advocated for the nuclear bombing of North Vietnam. Oh, you, you have. I'll give you time and place if it amuses well, you. Well, you won't. No, I will. No, 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 I no, no, no Bill. bill. I, 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 don't, don't, don't step away from the record. You suggested the atom bombing of North Vietnam in your little magazine, which I do not read, but I am told about, on uh, February 23rd, 1968. Now, Mr. Bedard, who boasts of not reading something, he is prepared to misquote in the presence of the person who edits it.
1: Now, Billy Buckley, the quotation is exact. Wow, there's a hell of a lot there. That was This House, of course, about the whipping operation to save the Callaghan government in 69. Channel 4's Brexit, the Uncivil War, featuring some guy called Dominic Cummings, instilling message message discipline in 2016. ITV's Quiz, which is all about the coughing major who didn't actually cough on who wants to be a millionaire back in 2001. And finally, in that uh, group, Best of Enemies, recreating the explosive TV debates between William Buckley and Gore Vidal during the 1968 US presidential campaign, which is currently running at the Noel Coward Theatre in London's West End. And I'm delighted that James Graham joins me now. Morning, James. Hi, morning, Matt. How are you doing? Really good. Yeah, great to have you with us. Uh, let's um, we'll talk about the, the 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 latest play and what you're working on next. But well, let's go right back to the beginning of your your story. How does a young lad from a comp in Nottinghamshire become the preeminent preeminent? I can't even say the word political playwright <laughs> of our times. So when did you start writing? When did you get the bug?
5: Uh, I don't know if I am the preeminent, but thank you for saying it. Um, I think I'm allowed I, to say it. I think if you said it, it would seem uncomfortable. That would be, yeah, disgusting. My Tom, <laughs> Tom stuff, was, Tom stuff was up there, I would think. But um, uh, no, thank you. And it's. Um, I mean, it, for me, it was all it was school, basically. And that's why I, I get so worried about the collapse of um, arts education in state schools at the moment. But yeah, we, I, you know, as you say, it was, it was a pretty working class town in the Red Wall. It's the community where I sat um, Sherwood on the BBC last year. Um, and if it wasn't for just a really brilliant drama teacher and a working theatre in a, in a school and a culture, I guess, of a school and a headmaster believing that working class kids should do plays, then I never would have, have started. So, yeah, I began, began writing then. Uh, so when you say writing
1: up, at school, were you literally sort of writing plays and things when you were at school? I was writing really
5: bad, like, comics and uh, novellas. I would probably wouldn't have used the word novella when I was 14. But like, <laughs> yeah, sh- uh, short stories. And, and none of them really political. My, my Actually, my first love, uh, was history I used to love going into history classes and a bit like a Netflix returning series turning up every episode to see who will win the French Revolution and um, things like that so I, I found that really gripping and that was my that was my political awakening I think in terms of historical storytelling so I actually began writing a bit of fiction then and then I went to university in H- Hull to study drama and that's when I really started writing plays.
1: And I, I suppose it's interesting you say you liked history because, it, it, to some extent, that's what you're doing—is you're bringing to life moments in history and all of the things you're talking about, um, uh, whether it's you know forty, fifty years ago or something that happened ten years ago. But that—that that is what you're doing—is it's. And I suppose that for people, some people say, oh, I didn't like history. It's really boring. But actually, history isn't boring because it involves people and dra- literally drama.
5: Completely, yeah. And I, I can't pretend I invented this. Obviously, Shakespeare <laughs> uh, I, I had a go at um, at trying to he make sense. He was all sense. right.
1: He was all he right. He was
5: fine. Right. He's, he's stood the test of time. But um, yeah, you know, what? obviously what he did and what playwrights have done through Arthur Miller, uh, if I can put myself in that category through to me, is um, is try to make sense of the present, um, the chaos of the political moment of the now by picking a moment from the recent or the distant past and seeing it through that way, through metaphor, through um, um analogy. And and that's I've just I find that is hugely helpful um for a for a writer and for an audience to go, we've been here before. Um, here's a story, as you say, it's a human story, a, a protagonist um dealing with big human things, jealousy, ambition, rage, hatred. Um, set against the backdrop of nation-changing events, a country at a crossroads, a country at war, a country ripping itself apart, civil war. And that just is the sweet spot for me. That's what makes great drama, the personal in, in the foreground with the national political scene in the background.
1: You also, it, one of the things which is more specific to your work, it, it struck me when I was thinking about it, is that you quite often take dull, well, I not going to say boring situations, but I don't, I don't you mean can that. That, uh, yeah, You can say that, Dull situations where you, sort of dull systems and structure are supposed to be, you know, the norm, and then they come under strain... Uh, whether that's you know whether that's in parliament or how you debate in a TV studio or uh, and then it's the moment when those norms are bent so much that they snap and that's the but the background I mean um, the the pitch meeting when you said I'm going to do a play on uh, the whipping operation in the the late seventies must have been an interesting yeah. one but actually it's a human story but it's the very dull workings of a whipping operation suddenly snaps it's because it's under so much strain
5: that's exactly it I find I have a, a sort of a mischievous and possibly masochistic <laughs> enjoyment at, at, at presenting and pitching, both to a theatre and to an audience, the the most implausibly entertaining evening, um, and then subverting that by by trying to inject it with with excitement and and humour and action. So you're right. I mean, on, on paper, a um, play, This House, about the 1970s and and whips failing to pass legislation is is not inherently thrilling but like you say for me actually one of my great enjoyments also is finding particular systems and worlds um and and working out how it how it runs in like a Swiss clockway, opening it up and seeing, oh, so that's how it turns. That could be parliament. How does that building that we feel so familiar with, how does it literally work on a night by night basis? How do you get MPs into the commons? What do you do if they can't get there because they're stuck in traffic or because they're having a psychotic emotional incident? Um, How does a game show work? Like on quiz, how Mm -hmm. do you pitch that? One of the challenges, if someone tries to break into your game show and steal a million pounds, how do you build a newspaper? If you're Rupert Murdoch and um, you're, and Reinventing the Sun in 1969, which was my play, Inc. Um, or How Do You Run a Referendum Campaign? Uh, you know, we, that the Brexit referendum affected all of our lives. But at the end of it, I realised I didn't know who any of these people were. I didn't know who Dominic Cummings was. I don't know how you set up a referendum campaign, how you set up the messaging, how you target that messaging, how you measure its effectiveness. So it's that geeky enjoyment of, yeah, it's sort of going under the hood of these national institutions, whether political or pop culture, and understanding both how they work, but then also what they say about us. And in particular, you mentioned the whipping office in this house. Um, I feel like the, the joy of that is it's it is just human stories. We obviously we forget that MPs uh, are not just ideologues who are uh, who you have to you interrogate on your, on your shows. They're human beings who struggle. They struggle in the system. And in the 1970s, as you say in particular, a system that came under huge strain. And in those moments you start to really understand those systems. So what does Parliament... Parliament has all these absurdities, but if you push it to its extremes, they start coming out, like um, dragging drunk and sick and dying people out of ambulances into the into the voting lobby to vote and that kind of thing.
1: I suppose a lot of that is... That's the sort of... And again, this is a hallmark of a lot of your work. I think the, the, the sort of best intentions gone wrong. Uh, yeah, the people starting out, you know, they want to make the world a better place. They think that's better if their party's in government. And before you know it, like you said, they're dragging in dying uh, patients. And similarly, in best of enemies, you've got um, William Buckley and Gore Vidal, both think they're going to raise the tone of debate in America. They're going to—they're both sort of big intellectuals uh, in sort of American. I don't know what you call it, civil society. And yeah. they think they're going to educate Americans in the debates of their times. And actually, they end up having a massive row and threatening to punch each other.
5: Yeah, and I find that very moving. I find people's best intentions to elevate a a culture or make a system work. And because we're humans, and we fail in that. um, Yeah, I think that is what, what is moving. So Best of Enemies, again, on paper, is an incredibly dry subject matter. It's about how the least successful American television network in the 1960s, which was ABC, how they came up with a new plan to cover the presidential election and in particular the conventions that year in chicago for the democrats and um, and miami for the republicans and because they had no money they invented a new idea uh, which was to get two pundits two famous people someone from the left and someone from the right to debate and, and exchange opinions and viewpoints and that had never been done before and obviously now that is it a staple. It won't part catch of, on. Yeah. There's no way that's thing. That's never gonna happen. And uh, and like you say, the genuine desire was to get very clever people, public intellectuals, which was like a, a, a distant concept, um, erudite um men and women who could really dig into the the big national questions of the day and it is i find it intoxicating when you listen when you anyone can watch these clips online uh, the bookie vidal debates they're so impressive they're like symphonic in in the rhythms of how they talk and debate and they you know they talk about specific policies but they also talk on a philosophical and a poetical plane about the soul of a nation and, it, and the direction of its, its, its travel and i find it really inspiring and then of course as you say it all ends incredibly badly because they really loathe and hate each other. And think the other person and their version of America, which they're trying to sell to the viewing public, is incredibly dangerous. And they explode. They say words and insults and slurs that had never been heard before on American television and American homes. But unfortunately, uh, it would prove a huge ratings hit. <laughs> and that's uh, uh, unsurprisingly. And so that model of turning discussion and debate into combat uh, and it being very personal obviously is, is a legacy a long legacy which we're living with today
1: yeah it's amazing sometimes when we're uh, particularly when we've got our columnists on uh, as, uh, as we do every morning sometimes people text and say oh, look are you all agreeing as if that's like a terrible, like, outcome for a discussion on the radio that everyone... I mean, you don't want that all the time. You know, it's interesting to have different perspectives, but that was, like, that mm-hmm. scene that's a The thing that struck me, because I, I came to see it when it was on it uh, at the Young Vic, what, about a year ago, and then mm-hmm. uh, came came to see it again uh, in the West End this week. And the thing that struck me watching it again is you're quite naughty, because you know, or maybe there's an assumption that the sorts of people are going to come and see this, particularly maybe it was at the Young Vic, uh, more so than the, the West End, but a sort of... A liberal metropolitan audience coming to see another James Graham play, and so what you do is you end up making us feel more sympathetic towards the right-wing commentator William Buckley and Gore Vidal, who, in theory on paper, the liberal metropolitan audience should feel more sympathy towards. It's actually a bit more annoying, and you don't, you you know, in, in the, who in terms of who you're rooting for, are you, are you doing that deliberately just to sort of tease, or is it or is it because actually the worst thing to do is to go and watch a watch a play, which is so. Sort of plottingly obvious in its in its lefty credentials that it's actually just less less interesting. Are you deliberately and teasing the audience like that?
5: Yeah, I am. It's a conscious choice <laughs> to. Um, it's a conscious choice to. I hope coming from a good place, which is, it's. I just think it's an incredible. It's an incredibly important and cathartic exercise to walk in the shoes of somebody you might disagree with or might not normally get to spend any time with. And as, as we all know, this is not an original thought, but more and more in the digital age, we are siloed into communities of concern and factions that normally appeal to our own bias. And I think so therefore you go, well, what is the responsibility or the power of television drama or a stage play. It's hopefully, I think, to be a public square where you, with different stripes, political stripes can come. And God forbid, even through the use of character and storytelling, you create empathy for a person by just asking the question, what are they doing? What do they want? What are they struggling with? And, uh, but I think it has to be, still be truthful. You can't just um, give all the devil, give the devil all the best lines for the sake of it. I, I think there is. In the, inherently, in the story of Buckley and the Vidal, as you rightly observed, there is that is present. I think I think William F. Buckley went into this as a conservative with the best of intentions and was determined to debate in good faith. Mm. Uh, I think Vidal maybe didn't quite do that. He was more mischievous. He, he went low. He went for the low blows quite early on. He was very mean and very mocking of, of, of Buckley. Um, but then the tragedy for me, you always have to search for what is the human tragedy in this? And of course, the tragedy for Buckley is that he was he was trying to sell conservatism, a respectable kind of right-wing conservatism, to America by saying, Look at me, I'm very decent, I'm very kind, I'm very noble. And he loses his mind in front of the nation. He starts screaming and threatening physical violence. So he betrays his principle um, and is and his what makes him who he is. And whether you agree with his politics or not, and they're very problematic in the modern age, he was briefly pro anti uh, pro segregation in schools and things. He, um, you know, he betrayed himself, and I find that very moving. Whatever his politics,
1: I suppose there's also that thing as well about just just making us check ourselves. That if you think, well, I'm on on the left, you, you can't just turn up and think, well, he's the one on the right, so I definitely don't like him. Yeah, uh, like, yeah. No, let's find out what he's got to say first. Let's see what you know how he how he handles himself, what he's got to say. Uh, likewise, if you're on the right, don't just assume. Well, that person on the left, well, I'm not going to like them. Uh, which is which is probably what's infected so much of our politics. I was struck uh, actually looking back through your your sort of back catalogue. You've done the nineteen sixties, yeah, with Best of Enemies. You did mm-hmm. the seventies with This House. You did the eighties with Sherwood. The nineties with Labour of Love. The noughties with Brexit. Where, where where do you go next? Do you go further back and do the fifties, or or could could you do a drama on, based on what's happened? And, and there's been pl- there has been plenty of drama in the last uh, twelve months.
5: It has, but how do you compete? Like I, I, That is, I think, the challenge for any satirist or dramatist in the modern age when uh, it's not just the level of drama, um, which is chaotic and insane, but it's also when politics changes to become, and this is slightly what Best of Enemies is about, when politics becomes aggressively performative anyway, like it is theatre, and some of the people in politics are essentially almost fictional characters in themselves. Like Donald Trump is a made-up character from a reality television show. Uh, Boris Johnson, to an extent, was always semi-performing a a role. Mm. It's how do you... Yeah, it's what value does drama bring to that and how does it... Can it help us make sense... Can it contribute to what you do, journalism? And can it contribute to everything else to inform our understanding? So, I'll be honest. At the moment, I have no um, huge desire to to write the forty six days of Liz Truss as an epic operetta or a, a, a five minute monologue because I just don't know. Like, I think we all know what that story is. Like, what I, I know what happened there. You know what happened there. Someone who was un, unfit for that role. Uh, proved themselves unfit and and was out very quickly so actually I think what I would do in a really really nerdy way would be to maybe go back to the to the 1820s and look at the succession of really short-term serving prime ministers like Canning and and Viscount Goderich I didn't expect to say the words Viscount Goderich on your show I'm sorry this is a safe space for
1: that sort of nerdy stuff that is what we're (laughs) here for
5: Thank you. I think um, in a similar way that we said earlier, I think there's something about using history as a metaphor, as a as a as a vessel to try and make sense of um, the chaos of the now. So I might I would probably go back to then.
1: There's a um, uh, there's a I don't know. I thought I was going to bring this up. Either uh, um, what's his name? Uh, Northcote, who was a uh, is it the anniversary of his death today? He was okay. uh, he was a Tory leader when Disraeli was in the Lords. He was basically the Tory leader in the Commons. Uh, when Disraeli dies, Salisbury takes over. Uh, But then when the Tories win the election, everyone assumes that um, uh, Northcote's going to become the the Prime Minister. But he's he's rubbish, basically. He's much too nice to Gladstone. So the Queen sends for Salisbury. Salisbury becomes Prime Minister, makes him uh, Foreign Secretary, and then decides he's rubbish. So he decides, well, I'll be Foreign Secretary as well as Prime Minister. And on the day he calls him in to sack him, he goes into Downing Street and dies. He's waiting to meet Salisbury and dies on Salisbury's sofa. Oh, um uh, it, uh, that all happened today. And I've been writing something about it, which is why it's provide. But it's an amazing story yeah. about someone I I knew nothing about. But you're right. Th- yeah. Th- that, that nugget of there being a bit something a bit boring. Maybe there's something in that for you. Anyway, you can have that. Is there anything Thank you. is there anything <laughs> uh, have you ever sort of gone into something thinking this might work for something and actually it's just turned out to be too boring? <laughs>
5: um weirdly no but i'm sure that time is coming uh i managed to uh, one of my early plays i was a 21 year old who wrote a play about anthony eden and the suez canal crisis and that that maybe was on the verge of, of boring but i was actually quite proud of that so no i think i mean i think any this will sound really trite and sentimental but i think any life any world any workplace any job and certainly any role in public life, whether it's prime minister or the leader of a district council, I think you can always find the epic qualities of that and and, and the meaningfulness of that, what it says about society, our culture. And I guess the common theme for me is, is, is Britishness, which is why, apart from Best of Enemies, which is set in the U.S., most of my plays are excruciatingly British and I have no I have no European footprint <laughs> store. People in people in Europe aren't doing my play about the Ashfield Labour constituency office for some reason. So it's but I'm never gonna change because you just have to be true to yourself and, and as a as a as a nerd for that stuff I think. Um I hope can always find the excitement in the most yeah improbable of worlds
1: so i've just checked out. his name is stafford Northcote. Uh, even i got it wrong and i was only reading about it yesterday um okay. i vaguely remember because this year's 30 years since maastricht and there's a lot of that sort of stuff knocking around did you and i once have a conversation where you said you were looking around because around that area or is that too much like uh this house and the the sort of whipping operations to try and keep john major's government together
5: no I'm still yes yeah, so that's that is maybe that is the play that's too boring to finish, but i i am still cracking away at that and i think <laughs> i think it's it, it feels almost like a sequel to this house i think yeah. if you speak to any if you speak to any whips, they will always tell you that the the i think there are three great. Uh, whipping operations in modern history. The first was in the 1970s, which I've done during the minority government. I think the second was Maastricht and the Maastricht rebels. And and that was still an age of people hiding in different houses and sneaking out and um, votes being won and lost by a margin of one or two. And then the third one, if I was to turn it into a trilogy, would be obviously Brexit. And um, if you can make the, what was it, the, 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 the Ben... Uh, the Ben Amendment. If you can yeah. make that into a into a, a, a musical a musical number, then you
1: can do anything. Uh, finally, but, um, uh, the, the day that you put on the Malt House Compromise in the West End, <laughs> that'll, be a, yeah. that'll be an, an enormous achievement. Um, what about? Um, uh, there's obviously a lot of discussion around the Crown and the the extent mm. uh, and the extent to which you're you're basing things on real life events. But you know, you don't when you're right, you don't know all the conversations, yeah. even if there are diaries or biographies and that sort of thing. How far can artistic license take you with the facts before you have to have a disclaimer at the start of the, the episode or in the programme or whatever it is. Are you conscious of that of of how far you can you can push what is fact and what is fiction?
5: Yeah, I really am. And I, I, I loathe that disclaimer that's been forced to be put on the crown at the very beginning. I think it's impossibly patronizing to an audience who really does understand the contract between drama and the truth. So, I but I I take it really seriously, and not just because I don't want to be sued for defamation by Dominic Cummings or Rupert Murdoch. I do actually think I have a moral responsibility to try and um, present people fairly and accurately, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean. I know I know it's dangerous to say this in a world of post-truth, but there is there are different levels of truth. And I think an artistic truth is can be more sometimes meaningful than documentary truth. And my favorite quote um, is, we put it at the very beginning of the Quiz, and it's from Picasso. And I think it says, art is not truth. Art is a lie that helps reveal truth. And I think that's what it is. You know that you're lying. I know I, you, the audience knows I wasn't there behind the scenes at Prince Charles's um, investiture. Um, but I, if I can get the best available evidence to try and unearth the truth, and then the rest of it, I'm looking for a different quality. I'm looking for the essence of truth, not the detail.
1: And then do you, just finally, because I said I would ask you the question, Did you did you invent Dominic Cummings? Is it your fault? I would
5: love to think playwrights had that level of impact on on history, but I think he definitely existed before I turned up. Uh, and I was very um, happy to introduce him to a, a, a
1: popular audience. Was it too, because it's, mo- it's the most recent thing that you, as in it's the thing you've yeah. done covering events most recently. With hindsight, was it too soon to do a Brexit drama? Or was no, it actually because, because people made- really knew nothing about what had been going on and actually a version of that needed to be told?
5: Yeah, because there won't just be one single Brexit drama. There wasn't one single World War II film. As our understanding evolves, new TV dramas and new plays and new poems and new paintings will come out. That was just the first draft. And actually, uh, you, we forget this now, but there was a time when no one knew who Dominic Cummings was, if you can imagine that. And uh, I think getting Benedict Cumberbatch to play him and to, uh, to analyse the role of the advisor in a referendum campaign was really important.
1: And so what, what can we expect from you next? I know Best of Enemies is on in the West End. What was the next apart from the uh, the never ending Maastricht drama? What's what's coming down the charts next from from James Gray? I'm
5: doing a second series of Sherwood, which was a BBC oh, drama. Great. Um, uh Yep. So there's other uh, other bad things have happened in Nottinghamshire in the past. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to be digging into that. So that we're going to start filming that in the summer. I had a musical with Alan John. Yeah, of John, course. Uh, we haven't uh, even discussed the, that.
1: Yeah, that's a whole that's separate right, thing. The Tabby
5: like said, uh, televangelism in the eighties. It's really fun. So hopefully, that will come um, have a future life this year as well. So yeah, there are things.
1: And actually, just finally, on that, on that the the Tommy Faye uh, thing, um, the sort of televangelism quiz as well with um, Who mm. Wants to Be a Millionaire. They're sort of based around this idea of sort of the shared national experience. Everyone was watching the same thing at the same time. Do, do you yeah. sort of mourn the loss of that? I mean, clearly, actually, Sherwood was a big hit and people were sort of following that along. But is it is it harder to capture that in the same way? Maybe that's why theatres sort of doing so well because actually you are at least having the shared experience with the people who are in the theatre at that exact moment.
5: Exactly it's a collective thing and you you share it as a community and I I detect no loss of appetite for that at all and that's why amazingly Happy Valley or thankfully shows like Quiz or Line of Duty still get these epic amounts of figures about 10 million people wanted to watch Line of Duty at the same time and that's because in the absence of any other elements of our public realm you know the closing of pubs of leisure centres of social clubs we still need to be a nation and that means sometimes sharing stories together at the same time and, and people really still want to do that they want to be able to binge certain shows but i think it's vitally important that we keep that linear experience sometimes so that we can
1: feel a community and so we've got time for on this episode of the red box podcast don't forget you can listen to me live monday to friday 10 till 1 on times radio and we bring you the best bits here on the podcast and if you're feeling particularly nice why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from
0: only from rustolium